I spent the Vedas all day and the rituals taught by the scriptures. All these am I and the offering made to the ghost of the fathers, herbs of healing and food, the mantram, the clarified butter, I the oblation and I the flame into which it is offered. I am the sire of the world and this world's mother and grandsire. I am he who awards to each the fruit of his action. I make all things clean. I am home. This is Volume 3 on the series of Unpredictable Programs. And uh, so our ongoing uh, series continues. Another public service message from way out. We care about your world. Stay tuned. The following program is brought to you in living color on WTDR. When you're younger, you don't care about a lot of things, but then, you know, there's that there's certain age that you reach, and it's like, wow, maybe I am going to be stupid for the rest of my life. I mean, look at him now. He's rough, he's rugged, he's red-blooded, he's romantic till it was touched by the flame of a woman's love. He's foolish, and he's daring, he's dashing, he's dangerous, he's a daredevil, he's foolish. He's a tone master. The handsome, headstrong He-Man who fought a strange and savage battle for survival. They're all full of shit. Then, smashing story of explosive passions filled in breathtaking, beautiful color. WTDR. That's the beauty of that. It's so spiritual. It brings out emotion in you. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind. In living color on WTDR. Wow. Say what I think. Say what I think. Say what I think. I'm a complete individualist. I'm against communism, capitalism, fascism, Nazism. I'm against everything, and I've often wondered what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. Change the channel.
Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, we've got a phone call already. Well, let's bring them up. Wow, hey, good morning. Love that. Good morning. You you just happen to be on the air. Yes. Hey, just curious to know what the uh, scheduling is in the morning for your uh, well, timings. Well, stay on and... You'll find out because we're gonna we're gonna discuss it right now because we have a guest in the studio. We have Barbara. I guess I hear it. I hear her and she is a guest. Hello, so so morning. stay on the line for the moment. A- any requests? Because we have yeah. because <laughs> we, we're not absolutely sure what we're doing, but I thought since Barbara showed up unexpectedly, I'm going <laughs> I was gonna ask her. What, so what have you got up your sleeve, Barbara? I said I'm good at it. Well, and, and by the way, good morning. Okay, well, and, and good morning to you. <laughs> <laughs> what have you got up your sleeve? <laughs> uh, Just limbs, my friend. Just limbs. Um, <clears throat> no, I've, I've got a lot on my mind and up my sleeve, actually. I've been uh, rehearsing for this play that I'm doing. It opens next month, and so I've been thinking a lot about memory. And then I, I have this great book that I've been reading, Wake Up to Your Life by Ken McLeod, and I open to it and, and just randomly, I don't know if you ever do that for like... You know, book wisdom, you just grab a book and you open it up to any page, right? I think that's called bibliomancing. Bibliomancing, I love that. That's the technical term. (laughs) So I was bibliomancing, and I opened up to an appropriate page that talked about forgetfulness. (laughs) And I thought, oh, crap, man. It's really great. And then other meditation techniques about, you know, the different elements dissolving, I thought would be very um, interesting to discuss. But I'm open to anything, and my synapses are firing. So, uh, caller, I don't know what your name is, but if you would like to identify yourself and suggest any topics. I could identify myself. (laughs) I got mail this morning, and it confirms my identity. (laughs) Barry. Hi, Barry. Uh, Barbara, it's great. Uh, So we're not going to do the souls. The souls. Well, that's the self-organized learning environment because it speaks to the, uh, not a broken system, but an obsolete system of education. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, so you mean as an acronym, S-O-L-E-S? S-O-L-E-S, self-organized okay. learning mm-hmm. environment. That is, it, well, Antonio can tell you more about that. Yep. S- yeah, we're talking about an Indian mm-hmm. educator named Sugata Mitra. I played a talk of his a few years ago, and this is a a much more comprehensive presentation of his. And he did a series of very interesting experiments with children in different parts of the world. And the experiments indicated that there was something unexpected going on in the learning process, something that they... The conclusion was that learning is a emerging property of direct engagement and this experiment with educational experiment set up circumstances for children who some of them had no access to schools Mm -hmm. and the results were amazing they didn't even have access to english which well right they didn't have access to anything except for this computer that he stuck in a wall like an ATM machine with no instructions and he left the kids, some of them were as as old as 12 years old, Mm -hmm. just left them to their own devices and the, the results were astounding and they have broad implications for education and considering that our education system is in an uproar about the cost of education and 
the inefficiency of it and how poorly it's working. And there's a lot of talk about how kids are just getting brainwashed in the system. And that they're being railroaded into the system that is now based on standardized testing and seems to have no connection to real life itself. Oh, my goodness. So we can explore some of the perspectives on what education really means to each of us. Yes, and the context of life and what's meaningful to us. Right. This is Sugata Mitra. Thank you. Good evening. Let me tell you where it all started from. It started from looking at how many children are there on the planet. For most human populations, 15% of the population are children. So if there are 6 billion people on the planet, then we should have a billion children. Then if you try to look at what these billion children have or don't have, with a bit of guesswork, you can get a pyramid of this kind. There are about 50 million children who have more than what they need for healthcare, for education, for whatever. There are about 200 million children who have adequate resources. They have enough for their healthcare, for their education, and for growing up. And then there are 750 million children who have inadequate resources. That doesn't mean that they don't have anything, but they have less than what they need. And then right at the bottom of the pyramid, you have children who have absolutely nothing. Now, I used to think of that lower 750 million as in the context of developing economies. Until I realized that if you think about it, this pyramid exists in every country. Its shape and size may be different, but every country has these three divisions, children who have more than whatever they need, children who have just enough, and children who have less. So we are not looking at a developing country problem. We're looking at a worldwide problem. Each country has to find its own way. Now the question is, so do you need three education systems? Do you need one kind, which is class A, that's for the top 50, class B for the 200, and then something else for the 750 below? Or could there be a common solution? Some things which children have told me, when I need to know something at the time when I need to know it, I can find out in five minutes. Now, how do you get that child to sit in the classroom with that thought in his head? Another pretty damning statement from England. My father is an engineer, but he doesn't have a job. This is from northeastern England, which has this glorious engineering history of shipbuilding for navies of the world and so on and so forth. Now, this little fellow has heard this from his parents. How do you get him to do STEM? Why should he? With that thought in his head. Another one, a favorite of mine. Why should I work hard to be a professor like you when I can earn as much by driving a bus? (laughs) This is not a weak attempt at increasing my salary. It is a genuine emotion (laughs) in the child's head. It's ironic because a generation works very hard to develop, to reduce the gap between the rich and the poor. And then you succeed, the children stop aspiring because they say, well, I can do anything now. Why do I need to work hard? On the other side of the world, you have different statements. We can't use the computer room when we want. It's not allowed. This is the Indian Victorian education system where things are allowed and not allowed in capital letters. Okay. Another statement from a school which is not a particularly poor school. The internet is down because the school didn't pay. 
Now, the principal of the school decided that he needed to build a couple of bathrooms and he needed the budget for it. So he said, well, let's look at what we're spending money on. What's this rubbish internet? Let's just stop it. So the internet went down. So when you put it all together, you get two kinds of problems. You get problems of relevance and aspiration and you have problems of resources. But I must again point out that these are not two problems of two sides of the world, of the north and the south, or the developed and the developing. Every country has both problems to greater and lesser extent. Let me illustrate that. Well, first of all, I started with this statement about 12 years ago that there are places on the planet where for whatever reason, the reasons may be different, but you cannot build a good school or even more importantly, you cannot get good teachers either cannot or do not want to go. I used to think again that this was a developing country problem, India, China, Africa, until I realized that no matter which country you come from, imagine the map of your country, imagine that you have a pencil in your hand and you can draw little circles for me and say, well, we're going to have a problem there. This is serious because the places where you can't get those good teachers to go for whatever reason are usually the places where you get all the trouble coming from. So again, an ironic problem, good teachers don't get to those places where they're needed the most. And they end up in the more affluent places where perhaps education could have happened by other means. An example, teachers wanted to move towards the more urban places. And they wanted to move towards more urban places because urban places have better healthcare, better sanitation, better entertainment. So the good teachers migrated. When I asked the Indian government, the government agreed. Yes, they said, teacher migration is a serious problem. So when I came to the UK, I thought, well, now here's a good way to check if I'm right, because here is a developed economy, so there isn't that much difference between rural and urban. So there's no particular reason why somebody would say, I only will work in cities. I should get a much more uniform school result. The UK's uh, school examination is called the GCSE. So I took the GCSE results and looked at them and I found to my surprise that they were not uniform. There were some very good schools and there were some very bad schools. What would explain that in a developed economy? I tried looking for a correlation and found a strange one. It's the density of council housing. Now council housing in England is government subsidized housing for families who are, you know, economically depressed or they don't have a job or there's illness or there's, you know, some problem or the other. So these are government-aided housing. And some areas have lots of such houses and some areas have less. So if you take the density of government housing and you plot it against GCSE, you get the same downward curve as you get with geographical remoteness in India. So I started going to the higher council density areas to see what was happening. And the same government schools with the same funding and everything would look a lot dirtier, um, graffiti on the walls, teachers complaining it's not really very safe to go out after dark. The same problems as we had with geography in India. So then I realized that remoteness can be defined differently for different countries. But there are remote areas inside every country, inside every state, inside every city. It can be geographical remoteness, as we saw in India. It can be socio-economic remoteness, as we see in England. It could be religious remoteness, it could be ethnic remoteness, genetic remoteness. It can be a dozen different ways because of which teachers will either avoid a certain place, 
or people will want to go away. So what can we do about that sort of thing? About 12 years ago, I was working in New Delhi and I, my job was to make uh, curriculum and uh, materials and pedagogy to develop software engineers in a large private sector company called NIIT. So I was doing this and I wasn't very happy with one fact, which is that these courses were highly priced and they were attended by children who, whose parents had a lot of money. Just outside the campus that we had was a large sprawling urban slum. Now, there were lots of children in that slum and I thought, is there any reason to believe that these children will not make just as good software engineers as the ones who come to my school? But how would I ever get a good computer teacher to go and teach inside that slum? I couldn't. So I decided I wanted to try an experiment. What would happen if I just took a computer and put it in a slum? So my colleague said that there isn't much of a research question here, you see, because the computer will be broken, its parts will be stolen and sold. I nevertheless wanted to try it and I did manage to convince my boss. The next problem I faced was where in a slum do you put a computer? You can't just take a table and put a computer and it will just disappear in about 20 minutes time. So uh, computers, you know, are not meant to be kept outdoors. Either somebody will get it or the weather will get it. They'll just stop functioning. The only model I could find was that of a bank who have traditionally put computers outdoors, the ATM. So I made myself a DIY ATM. <laughs> okay, you can see that over there. And I stuck it into a wall, nice big screen computer. It's three feet off the ground. It's running Internet Explorer with altavista.com on it in those days. The children don't know any English, barely go to school. They've never seen a computer before, never heard of the internet. I then told a colleague of mine to take a video camera and wander around the place discreetly and record for me the destruction of this computer. <laughs> After about eight hours, he came back in and he said, you know, it's very strange. Children are browsing on the computer and they're teaching each other to browse. So um, I said, well, that, that's really surprising. I mean, how could that happen? So then everybody got together and said, this is very simple. Inside your campus, you've got 3,000 young, educated software engineers. So one of them was passing by, saw the children struggling with this computer, they showed them how to use the mouse. So I thought, well, that makes absolute sense. Let me try it in a place where the chances of a passing computer engineer are minimal. <laughs> so I then selected a village in northeastern India, quite a remote place, and I put in a computer in their school. They didn't have an English language teacher because no English language teacher would actually go and work in that place. And the children sort of went to school sometimes, again, never seen a computer before. I returned after two months and I found a little boy and a girl playing some kind of a Microsoft game on that computer. And as soon as they saw me, they said, oh, you know, we need a faster processor and a better mouse. <laughs> so that was my introduction to, you know, underdevelopment. So then I sort of asked them, how do you know all this? And they said, well, you've given us a computer that works only in English. So we taught ourselves English in order to use it. Very simple. Then I thought, well, they're using two positives. If I teach myself the language, then I can use the machine. If I had given it to an adult, he would have said, if I can't understand the language, I cannot use the machine. So how come children use two positives and adults use two negatives? When do the two positives of childhood change into the two negatives of adulthood? And who does it? 
And as a teacher, I began to get a little nervous about this. So <laughs> that experiment showed that they could actually still navigate. We then tried the experiment over and over and over again. I got some World Bank funding to show that these were not freaks. We had statistical evidence that it would work everywhere. We tried it in village after village, about 23 of them, and found a couple of other very strange things. Just to give you one example, in one village in the western deserts of Rajasthan, in India, they have a peculiar habit, which is that all the children sing. They sing pretty lovely desert songs. And when you ask them, why do you do this? Why do you sing and teach each other to sing? They have a very interesting explanation. They say it doesn't cost any money. So into that village, BBC put in a computer and they said, look, you can come with us. Don't open your mouth. We'll put the computer and we'll check whether whatever you say happens actually does happen. And in that village, what happened was actually beyond my wildest imaginations. In about 12 hours, the children discovered the sound recorder, sang into it, and for the first time in their lives, listened to their own singing. A great piece of learning for educators that children will go for, as Ashley mentioned, the children will go for what interests them, and they will find it whichever way, as long as that interest exists. So remember the context. This is completely unsupervised access happening in one village after the other. So I uh, started to measure it, and I took a computing literacy scale on the y-axis and number of months on the other, and it was a straight upward learning curve, ending at about 43%. If I took that same test and I gave it to all of you right now, we would get about 43-44%. It's everything that we do. Email, surfing, browsing, searching for information, videos, increasingly these days Facebook, Twitter. Everything that we do was getting done over there in nine months amongst each other. So at the end of that first period, we came to this conclusion that groups of children can learn to use computers and the internet on their own, irrespective of who or where they are. So with those results, I then began to get a little curious about what else might they be doing with that computer. So we moved to the second phase of the experiment from 2002 to 2005, where I wanted to actually carry out a few harder tasks. The first one that we took on was in the city of Hyderabad in southern India. Now Hyderabad is a big sprawling city. It has a surprising thing. It has thousands of little private schools, not for rich people, but for poor people. And the poor people spend a few dollars a month sending their children to these schools because of only one promise, that they'll be taught good English. And learning good English at that strata of Hyderabad society would make a huge change to the lives of these children. But something was going wrong. The schools were teaching good grammar, good punctuation, you know, spelling, that sort of thing. But no native English language speaker would go and teach in a Hyderabad slum school. So the children were picking up the accent of the local teachers. The local language is Telugu and it's a very strong accent. So when they would apply for a job, the interview board would say, well, you seem to know very good English, your English seems to be very good, but we can't understand anything that you're saying. So you can't get a job. So now here was a problem that was a, you know, a pedagogical problem. I went into one of the schools and I bought them a computer. And into that computer, I loaded a speech-to-text software. We had to buy those in those days. Now you get it free with Windows. You know, you speak into the computer and the computer will type out whatever you're saying, if it understands you. 
So I loaded this in and I called some children and I said, look, just talk into the computer. They spoke into the computer and it produced complete nonsense. So the children laughed and said, it doesn't understand anything of what we are saying. So I said, fine, I'll leave it here for two months. You have to make yourself understood. The children then said, how? And I invented a new method. I said, I have no idea. And anyway, I'm going away. <laughs> so I left them, I went off, I came back after two months. When I came back, it's a predominantly Muslim area. It's a little boy, Faizan, was standing outside the classroom. So I asked him, Faizan, how are you? Faizan says to me, fantastic. So, so I said, so, so, so I said, gosh, what's going on in here? I discovered what was going on. After I left, they had downloaded the Talking Oxford Dictionary. And they were constructing sentences with it. Oxford Dictionary would say it to them. They would repeat it back into the sound recorder, take the voice file, submit it to the speech-to-text engine, see how many words were coming out right, criticize each other's pronunciation. In other words, I had left the learners with a learning problem and no pedagogy. They had invented the pedagogy. So my point was that whatever they did with their pronunciation, but they invented a pedagogy. That's, learners are not supposed to do that, remember? We are supposed to invent pedagogy for them. Who are they to invent pedagogy? Well, they had done it. So then I, I thought these were really surprising. At this point, I got a call from a famous person, the late uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke. He was still alive. He was in Colombo, the science fiction writer, the inventor of the satellite, actually. He said, look, I've been following your experiments and I'm very interested, so can you come and talk about it to me? So I went to Colombo. I met him and he said two things, which are both of which are, I think, very important for educators to remember. The first one was, a teacher that can be replaced by a machine should be. Okay? <laughs> so, got to, so, double-edged sort of thing. The second one, not so tricky, but very deep. The second one, if children have interest, education happens. Okay, both very important. So armed with both of these, I went and started to experiment all over India, Africa, Cambodia with how far can children go. In the meanwhile, in the streets of New Delhi, the computers had been there for about nine months and the teachers were beginning to say some very interesting things. They said, you know, the children's English has improved dramatically and the quality of their work has changed completely. It's become very deep. I thought to myself, how can a DIY ATM do all this? You know, there has to be something more. So I went and talked to the children and discovered what had happened. Six months down the line, they had found Google and by Googling their homework. And I thought to myself, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> because, you know, naturally their English is very nice. Naturally their, their stuff is very deep learning and everything. But how is this learning? So I wouldn't get an answer to that question until several years later. So at this point, I concluded that groups of children can learn to achieve educational objectives on their own. They can, they can do it by themselves. Up to now, the teaching community was very fond of me. You know, they said, it's lovely. You know, they can learn computers by themselves. They can change their pronunciation by themselves, even though we are not there. When I put this one down, they became a little grim. Then around this time, a colleague of mine in Newcastle University in UK, James Tooley, got several million pounds worth of research money to, of all things, improve the quality of schooling in Hyderabad, India. 
So he called me straight away and he said, look, you're the guy who should be doing this. So I said, well, I'm only two hours away from Hyderabad. I'll help you. And then he said, no, you can't handle two million pounds of university money sitting in New Delhi. So in the winter of 2006, I had to buy myself an overcoat and move to Newcastle. So having moved to Newcastle, I had a sort of a similar meeting to this one with my colleagues. I explained what the work was and they said, you are perhaps getting a little senile. So I said, why is that? And so, so they said, look, it was fine when you said they can do computers on their own. It was fine when you said they can do pronunciation on their own, play games on their own. Now you're saying they can do everything on their own. So I said, well, the only way to answer this is to design an experiment to show that there are some things that children cannot teach themselves. So we designed an experiment. It was to be done in a village called Kali Kuppam in southern India. The research question was as follows. Tamil is the local language spoken there. Can Tamil-speaking 12-year-olds in a tsunami-hit village in southern India teach themselves the biotechnology of DNA replication in English from a street-side computer? And I thought this was going to be a cinch. They'll get a zero to start with, they'll get a zero to end with, and they'll come back to Newcastle and say we'll need teachers. So off I went to Kali Kuppam, and you know, it, it really had been hit by the tsunami, it was completely wiped out. I had given the children two computers to play with, two hole-in-the-wall computers. So I called 26 of them as an experimental group. I downloaded some material into the computer on the DNA replication. And I said to them, look, there's, I've put in something very interesting in here. It's all in English and it could be really hard, but uh, if you like, you can have a look at it. So the children, of course, immediately rushed off to look. And they said, it's full of diagrams and equations. And they said, I mean, how are we going to understand this? So I used my method and said, I have actually no idea. And anyway, I'm going away. So, <laughs> so, so I went off. And I came back after my usual two months. I had pre-tested them and they had got a statistical zero. I called the 26 children. This time they came in, they were very quiet. So I asked them, uh, so have, what have you understood? So they said nothing. So I thought, well, it's a little children, what else could I expect? So I said, well, how many times did you look at it before you decided that you understood nothing? So they said, no, we haven't given up on that. We, we're looking at it every day. So I said, for two months, you were looking at something that you didn't understand at all every day. What for? So then this girl whose ribbon you can see, she was 12 years old at that time. She raised her hand and she says to me in this broken Tamil English, she says, apart from the fact that improper replication of the DNA molecule causes genetic disease, we've understood nothing else. <laughs> so, so, you know, a great lesson for educators that the bars that children set for themselves today can be a lot higher than the bars that we set for them. So when a child says, I haven't understood anything, don't take him at face value. <laughs> so um, I then post-tested them. And what we got on the post-test was an educational impossibility. From a zero to 30% in two months, unsupervised. Remember the context again, Tamil speaking, 12-year-old, tsunami hit with his roadside computer, the bio, <laughs> the DNA replication in English, <laughs> zero to 30%. But I still couldn't go back to Newcastle because 30% is a fail. So how do I get them to pass? How will I get a biotechnology teacher to go to Kuppam? I couldn't find one. What I did find was a 22-year-old accountant, a girl, a young girl, who was a great friend of the children. So she would play football with them. So I called this girl and I said, look, can you help me? Can you teach them a little more biotechnology? 
So she says, no, I can't because I didn't have any science in school. I have no idea of this subject at all. So I said to her, well, let's try this. Use the method of the grandmother. So she says, what's that? I said, stand behind the children and admire them. Every time they do something right, just say, wow, what a fantastic thing you've done there. <laughs> you know? When I was your age, I couldn't have done anything like that. <laughs> How do you kids understand so much about computers? You know? So she did that very effectively for two months. The scores rose to 50%, same as the posh schools of New Delhi with trained biotechnology teachers. I took the results, took me years to publish them, but uh, by the way, all this is now published in the British Journal of Educational Technology September issue. It's quite something. I mean, this, this is not supposed to happen. So I went back with these results back to Newcastle and I said, I'm sorry, I haven't found the limit at all. So then I went off into the schools of Gateshead. That's a little town across the river from Newcastle. And I started to work with the schools there because now everybody was interested in what was going on. I took 32 10-year-olds, I told them, divide yourselves up into groups of four. I don't know who your friends are, so make whatever group of four you want. Where do I get the number four from? It was the ideal number in the hole in the wall. Most of the time they work in groups of four or five. So the children did that. Then I said, okay, every group can use only one computer and not four computers. Then I said, if you don't like your group, you can go and join another group. You can talk within your group, you can talk across groups. You can go over to another group, peer over their shoulders, see what they're doing, come back to your own group and claim it as your idea. <laughs> and I explained that I work in a university and a lot of research is done using these methods. <laughs> so they, they were, like you, they were very happy with this. <laughs> then I had my most difficult problem, which is I told the teacher that, can you leave the classroom? And she says, no, I can't. It's not allowed by law. I can't leave them alone. So I had to beg and cajole her and say, look, we'll just we'll keep the door open. We'll stand outside. We'll have a cup of tea. The cup of tea always does it in England. So she went off to have a, a cup of tea. I then gave the children six GCSE questions. These are questions that they will see six years from now when they're 16 at the end of school. And I left them alone. The best group solved all six correctly in 20 minutes, the worst in 45. The teachers came back and said, so what? They're Googling the stuff, they're looking at Wikipedia, they're talking to each other. One of them claimed that uh, she had seen a girl call her father on the, on the mobile phones. So I said, but they answered the questions. Why don't we do a little experiment? I'll come back in two months, which I did, and I'll give them a paper test. Every child sitting alone by himself or herself, you cannot talk to each other, you can't look at each other's work, no computers, and let's give them the six questions back. When I had done it the first time, that got a score of 76% on the average. When I did it the second time, I got an anomalous result, 76%. I then asked the teachers, now what's, what's this going on? And the teachers said, this is amazing. They seem to have photographic recall of what they did on that day. I think it has something to do with the group work. I don't think a single child with a single computer would have remembered with that kind of clarity. But they were arguing with each other in the group. They were going across and seeing what other people are doing. And the teachers said they're reproducing the screens with the diagrams in them and everything, uh, as though they had photographed it in their minds. But it was still recall. Are they learning anything? Well, eventually, and this is now brings me to absolutely current work, eventually we tested for 
learning. And I'm very happy to say that there is learning, there's deep learning happening. They're able to use knowledge picked up from one exercise in another social context. To give you an example, I once took a group of nine-year-olds and I told them, today, let's do fractals. You know, fractals is what you do in second year postgraduate mathematics. <laughs> so they said, what's that? You know, they're a very confident lot now. They're very used to my method. So they said, what's that? I said, fractals, you know. So they said, spell it. So I spelled it. <laughs> I spelled it. And off they went. The Mandelbrot set, the Julia set, the beautiful drawings. Okay, and you can't expect them to understand higher mathematics, but they went into fractals. So I thought, this is good enough. Some time went by. And the teachers said, what have you done with these kids? Because they're all going around talking only about fractals all the time. I took them out to a, a camping trip and they kept looking at the trees and saying, those leaves, they're all fractals. The flowers, they're all fractals. The clouds, they're all fractals. One of the parents came and said, what are you doing in math? Because my little boy, I gave him a pineapple to eat and instead of eating it, he was just staring at the whole thing and said, mom, the skin is a fractal. <laughs> so, so, so then, you know, they were continuously Googling and discussing fractals. Uh, so they were using concepts across from one way to the other. But we know that this method will give us not everything, but it will give us 30%. Where do I get the grandmother from? So I put out an appeal in the Guardian newspaper saying, if you are a grandmother and if you have broadband with a web camera, then can you give me one hour of your time every week for free? Grandmothers turned out to be a very energetic lot. I got, <laughs> I got 200, <laughs> okay, of whom 40 qualified with all the correct equipment and everything and they got to work. They are now called the Granny Cloud. And whenever required, I beam them over Skype into the slum schools of Hyderabad or into the schools of Columbia or into Melbourne or wherever. These 40 mostly retired women with decades of experience, they've done over 500 hours of instruction with some of the poorest children on, on the planet. It's a wonderful equation. The children love their British grannies. They appear as full size on their walls. The grannies themselves, they finished their life's work and as one of them put it very poignantly, she said, I would have never thought that my house would be full of children's voices again. So it worked just fantastically well. So 30% on their own, triggered off by a question, the balance with the beamed in grannies. Okay. These two boys wanted to be footballers. We went into portal and we typed in Leonardo da Vinci. After eight hours, they wanted to be Leonardo da Vinci. This is an Indian mediator coming into a, what's called a self-organized learning environment. So the question is, how far can we go? Two little examples and, and I'll stop. I went to Turin, Italy and worked with a group of 30 10-year-olds. I asked their teachers, can you leave us? And the teachers said, no, we can't because you speak only English, they speak only Italian. How are you going to communicate? So I said, actually, I have no idea, but can you leave us anyway? So I managed to get rid of them. They went outside. I wrote down a question on the whiteboard in English. So the children looked at me blankly. The question was, uh, how did dinosaurs die out? So they looked at me blankly and shrugged. So I said, what, don't you understand this? No. By the way, I'd got the teachers to make the groups of four before that. So then I said, well, then uh, shall we call the teachers back? So they, with horror, they said, no, 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 don't call them back. <laughs> we, we will do it. <laughs> so, then what they did was they typed in the English question into Google Translate, got the Italian, went into the Italian internet and solved the question. 
So then I started writing more questions, making it harder and harder. Now here's what happened. So 20 minutes later, they had the two main theories of why dinosaurs died out. Next one was simple. It was, where is Calcutta? And they did that in 10 minutes. Then I got really ambitious. Who was Pythagoras and what did he do? But these are 10-year-olds, so there was silence for a while. Then one of them comes up to me and he says, you spelled that wrong. <laughs> 20 minutes later, the right-angle triangles start to come up. So one of the kids was actually taking Pythagoras' equation, typing it back into Google, and he was heading straight towards the, you know, those Lagrangian equations or whatever it is, special theory of relativity. The Italian teachers came back in, and it's a very poignant moment for me, because one of them said to me, stop them. And I thought, well, is that what's wrong with the system then? Should we? Or should we just let them go? I still don't know the answer. So here are the conclusions. Information search and analysis and reading comprehension, it seems to me, are the two most important skills that we need in elementary education. Children in the age group of 8 to 12, if they have sufficient amount of reading comprehension and information search and retrieval skills, can go, as you saw, as far as you would like them to, or as far as you let them. The assessment systems have to match up with all of this. I don't understand why a child should be asked if he knows how to multiply numbers. Why is that so important? Or to work out the square root of a number by hand. Why is it so important? The children don't understand that either. And that's why they don't like going to school. What you can do is you can ask them really, really hard questions. So, so just as a one last little example, take Google Earth. I did this uh, a little while ago. Google Earth onto Geneva. You can see clearly the Large Hadron Collider, 26 kilometers long, circling. Then I did something really risky. Showed them a picture of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. And I said, you know, that one in Geneva, it's bigger and it's our cathedral. So now the children are listening. So they say, you know what happens in there? Particles move at the speed of light. Two rings of them in two different directions. We smash them against each other. And then we find out what comes. We are looking for the Higgs boson. The children then said, can you spell that? <laughs> so, you can drive them in any direction with questions. You don't need to give them answers because they have all the answers. They, they can find the answers. If they can read, if they can understand, and if they have a rational belief system, you can get them to do anything on their own. If you can trigger them off with the right kind of question, your job, our job, the educator's job, is to redefine the curriculum as questions. If you do that, then you convert education into a self-organizing system. When it becomes a self-organizing system, it can't be stopped anymore. And you could make a really, really big change. I did a little calculation, and it works out to five cents per child per day and you could get all the children on the planet to think differently, to think in this way, in under 10 years. Well, there are a lot of children, so it works out to $180 billion. But it's not a lot of money, actually, for the change that we can make. And that's about it. Thank you. <laughs>
I just want to know what the next project is. Thank you for asking that. You know, the thing is, uh, this whole thing need, needs a theory now. It needs a theory on how exactly it works. And uh, I actually left a couple of slides at the end because, you know, I told the story. But there is a subject which I think which is going to play the same role in, a, in human development as physics did in the 20th century. That is the science of self-organizing systems. I think that education in the context in which we saw it was behaving like a self-organizing system. In a self-organizing system, you get emergent phenomenon. For example, you have dust lying around, you have a breeze blowing, you get a little dust devil that forms and moves around. There is nothing in the dust which says that there should be spirals in there. There's nothing in the wind which says that there should be. It just happens. It's emergent phenomenon. I think if you speculate that education, if it is a self-organizing system, then could it be that learning is the emergent phenomenon, and which is why when it happens, we're so shocked by it. So where did that come from? So here's my speculation. Emergence is the appearance of a property not previously observed. This is the guess. I think it can be, we can show it in five years. It needs a lab. It needs a lab and uh, I can't do that lab in a developed country because the laws won't allow it. I need a place where nothing else can be built. And I know such a place. I'm actually lucky enough to know a place in India where the government says, look, we can't do anything here. Whatever you do will be good. If one can have a lab, and one has to do it ethically, correctly, if one had a lab, if one had five years, if one could show that emergent phenomenon is what drives education, then you could actually predict. Then you could actually build a physics of education. So you do a longitudinal study, see what happens to those children, build the physics, and once you've done that, you can actually predict. You can say, given this kind of children, given this kind of an environment, given these inputs, this is what is likely to happen. Okay, we're going to cut in. We have a caller. Welcome. Okay, tell you that was quite a, uh, a revelatory uh, piece of uh, programming. Very interesting. Was I just wanted to ask one sort of question that was kind of percolating up in my mind. If it's a self-organized learning environment, right, where you could drive the children in any direction, just a little few grandma dynamics, a little admiration whenever they do it right, and, uh, you know, all they need is, uh, you know, the info, you know, the technology of being able to search and analyze and then the language skills. But then, who's going to ask the big question? Who's going to direct the, the frontal lobe? To, you know, who's going who's to uh, create the perspective? Of, well, um, he talks about that later in the question and an answer session. He talks about a whole new way of training teachers to do oh, just that. Pray tell. Training. Well, we could listen to him, or no, basically, I'd like to listen to you. Yeah, basically, it's it's just training teachers to ask good questions that mm -hmm. enable the ch the children to create their own learning to create their own pedagogy, to create their own methodology out of their own innate desire and genius. Well, I still begs the question. Yeah, I, I come from a, um, a, a tradition that 
that looks for the view first, then the practice, then the way of life. You know, when I ask about the view, I'm looking at a world that's in total, you know, chaotic mess. It, it, it works, but there's a certain um, misunderstanding going on. I don't understand what you mean by the view and the method. What, okay, what is, well, how does that explain. relate to this? All right, so view is how do we create the greatest benefit and the least harm? Okay. Okay, so if you have an educational system that's creating harm, although it's, it's, it's sort of an invisible kind of harm, and we just see it in its self-destructive, you know, and, and, you know the way kids evolve and emerge and you know, disaffected and not interested, or, or they become super successful and then they accumulate a huge amount. They try to eat like elephants when they can only defecate like canaries. Or they're, you know, just, I mean, they're just being railroaded into, right. into old, old, old patterns, old systems. Right. right. And that old system came about, this, um, this educational system that came about during an era when the industrial uh, needs were di- we, you know, we were in an industrial period and the needs were different. You know, we needed to organize people in different ways. You know, we needed to get them have good handwriting, as he points out, you know, so that they could, you know, be, everything could be legible and so forth, or that there would be some uniformity, that, you know, when you'd educate somebody, you know, make them remember things in one context so that they could function in another context anywhere else. In the, in, in the space. And that kids were being taught things that will help them in the kind of jobs that society yeah. was trying to direct That's them right. towards. Context, it's con- with context driven. Yes. So now the context is different. Yes. And yes, that is the exciting. environment is different. Everything yes, is different. Yes, it's very exciting to discuss these issues, you know, in a new, in a new with, with new perspectives and, you know, in an enlarged view, as it were. Yes, and we have another caller. Yeah. I want Hi, Tonio. It's Eva. Hi, Barry. Good morning, Hi. Eva. Good so morning, one Eva. way that I think of the question of you, and it's what I was wondering about as I was listening, is that it's the question of why. Why, why, why? learn something? And I think that that question has always been an important one. What... Do you what, mean the individual what we level? listen to says is that you can clearly motivate children. They're self-motivating, really. Um, But I think what Barry is asking is, who decides what are the big questions? And I was thinking that that's something that we and whoever else wants to call in or who's listening could really be thinking about. You know, if you were queen or king of the educational world and you were going to create these souls and you were going to give the grannies a list of the big questions, what would they be? Well, to actually take it to another level, Sugata Mitra talks about children will take the methodology as far as we let them take it. And I think the questions are the initial stage that first we engage them in quote-unquote difficult questions to get to stimulate them and challenge them to learn how to approach 
difficult questions, how, how to create their own methodology toward being able to answer those questions on their own or working together in collaboration. I have no question about the value of that and that what you're creating is learners and that that's key. I'm thinking about questions of what does it mean to be a good human being? How should we treat each other? I mean, I spent a lot of time working at Harvard, and the students coming into my office were frequently coming in with questions about roommate disputes. Mm-hmm. And in that huge institution, multi-billion-dollar institution, no one was talking with them. No adult was talking with them about how to handle conflict with another human being. And just basics ethics and morality, is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. So, so what I'm do you saying, think that's taught? Well, I'm saying that I think that, I mean, I really liked the statement that Arthur C. Clarke made of anything that a machine can do instead of a teacher, the teacher shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's things that the machines can't do. Mm-hmm. Machines aren't wise. Right, they they can't ask the really good questions, particularly in response to emerging circumstances. Well, it's not just asking the questions. It's modeling. So when there's talk about how you could train teachers to do this, I think to myself, how many truly wise, developed, you know, relationally mature teachers oh. have I known? Well, that's and the whole... school systems. Mm-hmm. That's the whole chicken and the egg thing, isn't it? I mean... You know, where, do, where do the teachers come from? They come from being a child and they come from the home. And then where does that come from? And then it goes right. on ad nauseum, right? So, right. so, so since so we have to start this, somewhere. You know, I'm just excited about how would you, you know, I, I don't know the answer, but how would you use this, what, what, what he's talking about, mm-hmm. to inspire, to, in, in combination with, I think that those are the big questions, well, I, not the content questions. Your question, what you're bringing up, stimulates responses in me, and that is that life experience is continually bringing up circumstances that we have the uh, we have the option or choices in how we can respond to them. And when when conflict arises, a good teacher could ask the children, "Well, how how can we?" How can we go about dealing with this conflict? And just asking that question and let the children work on that themselves rather than having somebody from outside telling them how they should do it. Well, again, it sounds like it's a grassroots individual. Each person has to step up to the plate and become aware first, really. You know. Yes, and, and you know, as you're saying that, I get excited because, you know, even if you have a teacher who necessarily have those skills... Yeah. If you ask that question, how do we deal with conflict? Mm-hmm. Or what does it mean to be a good human being? Mm-hmm. And you simply had the kids do the same thing, Google stuff. Yeah, yeah. They would find examples of all kinds of attempts that have been made, yeah. all kinds of answers to yeah. that. 
Well, that's 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 part of it, isn't it? Is to recognize. I mean, the first basic question is to recognize that something is broken, that there's a problem, and then creating the the environment and in which to pursue those 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 answers. But, but yeah. first, you have to realize that there is a problem there. I have a great friend of mine. I wish she was available to call in, but she's actually teaching right now. She's a great professor. She's been doing it for years um, down in New York, and she teaches teachers how to teach and in specific the, the the disabled and we get into dialogues like this all the time and how crucial it is to to ask questions to stimulate the person and to treat the person like an intelligent human being from the get-go that they are capable of figuring it out that they do have the answers but they just need to be uh how do you say sparked with the the question and to be respected shown the respect right. of like their own out, ability yeah i'd like to point out that this open learning model is inherently uh, dangerous, as all true learning is. Example, <clears throat> the Dartmouth professors who were brutally murdered were killed by two young men, <clears throat> one of whom had been reading Nietzsche. And the police investigation revealed that, uh, you know, Nietzsche's uh, virulently dangerous nihilist philosophy was a major um, inspiration Uh-oh. for those murders. Uh, these two kids had decided that they were going to uh, go off to Australia, and they wanted to go, arrive with a reputation because they'd learned that Australia was a big, bad, dangerous place. Uh, so <laughs> I think Barry's question of, you know, who's, a- who's asking the question, who's guiding the inquiry is of it is. However, there's another factor that you seem to be overlooking, and that is that these kids are working together collaboratively. And what you're describing are kids who are left alone to their own devices without feedback, without, without this collaborative, immediate collaborative feedback loop. And I think that's one of the things that's most dangerous that's being accessed in these experiments is that these kids are actually working together, collaborating, experiencing conflict because they're arguing with each other and they're challenging each other in the moment to come up with solutions. Well, the other thing is everything can be misused. Yes, absolutely. There is absolutely nothing that can't be misused and hasn't been misused. And that's one of the... And certainly a highly controlled educational environment has created tremendous harm in this world. So I think the fact that one can always point to the ways in which anything can be dangerous absolutely doesn't invalidate it. Yeah. I mean, you know... <laughs> exactly. Oh, I, I, I mean, I'm thinking see. of Buddhism yes, right now. I mean, oh, sure. you know... The danger sure. factor cannot be, uh, you know, cannot be discarded, you know, based on the the notion that one will get the right teachers to ask the right questions. Right, Open but I learning think learning is inherently dangerous. That's my own. Well, everything is dangerous, but I think if we if we respond to possibilities out of fear, then we're going to trap ourselves in the past. And and it's really important. I think it's really important that we trust our children to because they're they're going to be the ones who are going to be taking, cl- re, you know, claiming the the future, the world that they're going to be living in, and we have to leave it to them. And if we're bringing our fears of the past into the future and we're trying to control them, I think yeah. that will create, that will that'll repeat 
the damage that we've already created. Well, I also suspect that these grannies um, are playing much more of a role than is even being spoken about, that they are acting as models. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what they're expressing to the children is sure. compassion and joy and sure. excitement and support. Sure. Well, there have been and some studies, too, Eva, hasn't there, on uh, how the limbic system and how the emotions affect the brain. And so we, we learn, we don't learn in a basically blasé, kind of neutral, you know, rote environment. It just kind of goes in, it's like Teflon, and it just falls right out. Right. But we're stimulated to remember things if it's highly charged negative experience, like a pain or running or fear, or it's a highly charged positive experience with this nurturing and loving environment or happier. And, the people and, and one of the points that he makes about the limbic system and how this all works is that although pain will motivate um, learning, yeah. what pain and suffering tend to motivate is falling back on old responses, old yeah. reactions. Yeah, well, because that's the neuropathway in which, you know, Right, because it it's the limbic system, it's the brainstem, right. it's, it's yeah. all the, the autonomic responses. That's right. What what comfort and trust stimulate are the connections between the limbic system and the cortical cortical systems. Sure. And then you get innovation. So were these grannies there in those places that had, um, what did he talk about, the typhoon? uh, typhoon I I don't know about that. Because I wonder about that in those kinds of Well, one thing, the the danger, the, the kids that are causing damage that are killing people, bringing guns to school and killing mm. people, those are, the, are generally kids who have lacked the empathetic modeling. Yeah. And if you have these grannies modeling, even yeah. for kids who have come from, from very damaged yeah. home situations, yes. if they have grannies modeling new behavior... That's going to change the whole dynamic. So, so the adversary will be the textbook companies who have a very powerful uh, corporate interest. In and that's the value of the experiments that he wants to do so that his, his, his discoveries, his findings can gain um, recognition in, in our culture, in our society, mm-hmm. which demands scientific proof. Yeah. Well, it also would be, I think, an incredible self-generated learning system for the teachers who have the capacity for it. Mm-hmm. Because really to be told, your role now is to do what can't, what they, is to give them what they can't find on Google. Yeah. What a wonderfully creative task. Yeah. The other adversary, of course, is the entire uh, essentially Ivy League competitive structure where uh, high school kids are competing uh, somewhat viciously with one another for slots at, uh, you know, Princeton, Yale, Columbia, you know, very expensive mm-hmm. elite colleges that uh, train the leaders of the United States. Right. And there would be tremendous resistance. But for me, when I'm listening to this, I'm challenging myself with, okay, if I had the opportunity... Mm-hmm. To create this, mm-hmm. what would I create? Mm-hmm. As a student or as a teacher? Both. Yeah. And in the, further in the question and answer session, somebody asked them about how are the kids being enticed to learn? And are they, are they set to compete 
with each other in order to get faster results. And one of the things that he, Sugata Mitra points out is that it's it, the exact opposite. It's not competing. Mm-hmm. They're collaborating. They're actually working together. They're doing all the things that we are taught not to do in school, which is, being, is considered cheating. When, when kids collaborate and learn with each other, mm-hmm. they are accused of cheating. And what Sugata Mitra is modeling is that it's the exact opposite. opposite this yeah. is the way that children learn the best. This is yeah. the way that children remember things the best. Yeah. They actually integrate what yeah. they're learning. Because you're interactive. Because they're interactive. They're engaging. Exactly. Engaging. Yeah, engaging and encouraging and getting biofeedback. And one thing that I found uh, that I really loved in his talk, and, and it's a great interesting thing to think about, is the two positives when he said, children say, well, I learned English because I wanted to learn the program or whatever it was right but then when adults were confronted with it they would say well because i don't know english then therefore i can't learn it so it there was all of a sudden this you know just kind of this wall that put up and when does that and then he even asked that question right when does that when do we stop becoming that inquisitive child that's that 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 doesn't stop i actually call it immigrant mentality right because when the immigrants came over they were like you know you just do it you just learn it and now you know, we don't necessarily do. We just stop. Well, I can't do this. I can't do that. When does that come? What do you think causes that, Antonio? I don't know, but that's that old line that comes from that old line of adults being stuck in the mud. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm just thinking about my own experience where I went to a very progressive artsy-fartsy school <laughs> um, until I graduated high school. Uh-huh. Um, and... Then I went to the university, and I was shocked hmm. because, you know, we were, we were given assignments, mm-hmm. and I remember I was writing a paper, and I was struggling with it. Hmm. I was just struggling with my own paralysis around it. So I asked a couple of, of other students, could we sit down and sort of trade, you know, what we had done so far with our papers? Because that's the way that we worked mm. in, in my earlier schooling. Mm-hmm. And they looked at me like I was suggesting stealing their wallets. Oh, wow. Hmm. I mean, I, I, copyright I, I was a pariah huh? within 30 seconds. Oh. There was just this freeze. And mm. this, no, they had all gone to public schools, competitive, oh, I see. grading, all of that. Uh-huh. And I remember just feeling like I'd done something terribly wrong. I never asked that again, for sure. And I just worked on my own, by myself. So that kind of shut you down? It shut me down, and I remember that when we got the papers back and Mm -hmm. the grades were announced, Mm -hmm. and I had done very well, Mm -hmm. there was this little bitter voice in me that said, well, next time you just might want to share. Uh, Yeah, sure, sure, sure. But it really, it just... Yeah. You know, I don't think it takes very many hurtful experiences, mm. and God knows school is filled with them mm. usually. Mm-hmm. Especially if you don't have on somebody supporting you like a granny yeah. or a supportive parent. Yeah. You can actually get stuck back there emotionally, permanently. Right. Emotionally and, and intellectually, depending upon the subject, too, exactly. like math. I mean, I'm arrested development in uh, 10th grade. <laughs> and we have an open phone line. The phone number is 454-7762 or 1-800-646-9437. And I would love to hear from other people on the positive side of 
what would the big questions be if you created one of these? What would you ask those kids to figure out? Mm-hmm. Well, probably. I mean, you know, you, you touched on a really great point, Eva, is, um, you know, ethics and morality just from the get-go, too. Just simple, you know, positive interaction with one another as a basis. Right? I mean, I was thinking you could make up hypotheticals. Mm-hmm. You could give the kids a, or a, a real example of, you know, here's this group of people. They were working on this. They get stuck in this way. These people are arguing about this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What can we do? Mm-hmm. How, how about asking the kids what are the problems or issues that are happening in their lives mm-hmm. and in the lives of their families? Absolutely. And have them directly engage in those things. Yeah. We actually do that. When I go down to New York, I'm in, uh, when I'm in Queens with my nieces, and we engage in certain dialogue, like that they're 10 and 12, and um, I'm, I'm always asking them questions. And that's, matter of fact, um, uh, that I'm thinking about it, one of the reasons my, my niece, my oldest niece, Jaden, she, she said, you know, Aunt Barbara, that's why I like you so much, is you ask me questions, you make me think, and you don't, you know, you don't just hand it to me. And uh, they, they, the kids, uh, in my small little experience of the world they they want that at least i know when i was a kid i wanted that too i wanted to think my grandmother i'll never forget speaking of grandmothers she was the one who pretty much raised me you know and um i i i forget how old i was probably preteen, and uh, my grandmother was quite intelligent and i said grandma how do you spell this word and she reached over grabbed a dictionary she said look it up and I said, yeah, but you know, you know, you know how to say it. She said, well, you will too, just open up the debate. But I don't know how to spell it. Well, sound it out, figure it out, you know. And just that, I remember to this day, and what a foundational practice, right? It's such a I wonder- think it feels good to stretch. It yes. really does, it and it is It innately feels good to stretch. And, and one of the things that, that Sugata Mitra found is that children love being challenged. Yes, yes. Yeah, we, we, I mean, and also to, we mentioned, Tony, you about what interests them. I mean, what's the big topic, to, you know, nowadays is bullying, right? So engaging in dialogue with that. Well, what are How the issues you, that they are facing in their lives? That's what I'm saying, like like bullying. Uh, when I talk to my nieces, um, you know, that's one thing, engaging with other kids. You know, there was one kid uh, that had a disability. Um, and, you know, how do you deal with, with that? Who's someone who's a little different than you? Um what do you do when your parents are fighting? Oh, my goodness. Well, right now, my, my nieces and my, my sister-in-law are possibly homeless. Uh, they're, 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 it's a long story, but, you know, so they're in, they've got all these real serious issues, and how are you dealing with that, plus going to school and still being a kid? I and, mean, these real adult issues. And now, now with the Internet, we have nearly infinite resources to help us with, with pretty much any problem. Yeah. However, if we don't, if we aren't empowered to do our own searching, yeah. our own exploration, we may never allow ourselves the opportunity of those choices. Yeah. It, what I saw a great uh, little uh, photo with a caption that said something like, in a world filled with people who couldn't care less, be someone who couldn't care more. And um, this goes kind of back to what you were saying, Eva, you know, if we all just individually kind of take onus to we, we 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 own up and take responsibility for ourselves and say okay what kind of questions can i ask myself you know yes. and then that and then let that be the inspiration to engagement with others and you, you know what what kind of questions would we let me just start right now oh, okay <laughs> what kind of questions would you ask ava myself sure yourself or someone else 
Let's just start from scratch right now in this present moment. Bam. Okay, here we are. How does this inspire you? Well, you ask me that and my mind goes blank. <laughs> That's a good place to start from, <laughs> emptiness. There we go. What's the first thing spontaneously that it might arise from that emptiness? To start to swirl. <laughs> but that's, that, that's a great start, right? Because that's what happens to most of us is we just kind of get, and I think that we don't well, realize that that's the starting point. You know, and one of the questions for me then would be, What's it like to stay in that swirling place? And and, and with the what was his name? Sugar Dimitri. He said, "Well, then I come up with my 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 standard answer, which is I don't know, uh, but I'm leaving. Yeah. Figure it out. <laughs> right, that's, that's his pedagogy. Is <laughs> pedagogy. I have no word. idea, and I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Figure it out. Bye, right. Eva. <laughs> I'll you be know, back in two months. And one of the things I'm thinking of is, as we're talking is, we got a new cat a couple of months ago who was extremely traumatized. He'd been adopted. He'd been brought to the shelter at two, and he was mm. so frightened mm. that he spent 11 months hiding behind between a cabinet and a wall, mm. which I think would describe a lot of people's experience of schooling. Mm. In any case, mm-hmm. we adopted him, mm. and he was terrified. Mm-hmm. He was utterly terrified. Mm-hmm. He hid under the bed. He was curled up. Mm-hmm. But he needed to know what was going on out mm-hmm. there. Yeah. That terror was so profound, mm-hmm. but so was the wanting to learn. Yeah. yeah. The wanting to experience a bigger world. Mm-hmm. And he risked a huge amount. And the first day that he came out, he stretched. Mm. He stretched for about 15 minutes, and mm. I think that's what these kids are doing. Yeah, stretching. Mm-hmm. That computer is in mm-hmm. the wall, and mm-hmm. oh my God, mm-hmm. they can expand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in ways that they never knew that they could expand. And once you know that, mm-hmm. you can bring it to anything. Feeling mm-hmm. safe, though, seems to be one of the... How do you say Absolutely. Yeah. Prerequisite. Being given yeah. the space. And what Sugata Mitra was yeah. doing was he was respecting the kids yeah. by giving them the space, space. to discover on yeah. their own. I'm not going to judge you or criticize you. Just do your thing. Right. The other interesting thing is he didn't put a call out for grandpas. Ah. Huh. Yeah. Just, I mean, I don't want to go yeah. over that. Too, no. But it was just interesting yeah. to me. Uh, that's an interesting thing. Well, you start, I think you yeah. have to start somewhere. Yeah. And, and just by him saying... Mm. acknowledging that I have no idea or even if he's even if he had an idea but he just he he refused to go there and just said I have no idea that gives yeah. children the yeah. room to grow and a question yeah. I have for all of us adults is are we interested enough in what we've heard today to actually gather together with some of our peers and do some of this kind of collaborative exploration. To be proactive and do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, I think for me and many of my friends, the big questions now at our age are around death mm-hmm. and illness mm-hmm. and not knowing how our lives are going to change, but knowing that they're changing mm-hmm. and knowing that our bodies are failing in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And knowing what the script is supposed to be and mm-hmm. what the options are supposed to be to mm-hmm. deal with that. Mm-hmm. But that there's a world of options. Mm-hmm. And I've often thought of just, you know, especially in February when everyone's clinically depressed, mm-hmm. just getting a group, you know, having a group of 
people come together mm-hmm. and just talk about, mm. so what are we going to do? And speaking of that, there's a, there's a death cafe which meets in Montpelier. I think they meet once a month, and we're actually going to have a few members of that group on the Magical Mystery Tour on October 3rd. That's two, weeks, two weeks from today. Mm-hmm. Yay. That's my favorite topic. That's yes. what Erica Heilman has been involved with? <laughs> she was involved. She was, yes, yeah, she was. I don't think she's working on that right now. But okay. She was supporting the Wake Up to Dying project. Right. Which is af- loosely affiliated with the, caf- the Death Cafe. You know, one of the things that makes me think, too, is um, I, I know, Barbara, that, yes, you're another deaf person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I just want to say, um, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is one's relationship to that changes in one's 60s and 70s and 80s. Yeah. That an awful lot of what seemed just sort of amazing or acceptable to me. Yeah. Um in my 40s or even early 50s, mm-hmm. um, you know, because aging has a way of finding what you are attached to. That's right. And what you are frightened by, Lucy. Yeah, yeah, sure. Whatever it is. Sure, and terminal illness speeds up that process as well, too. Yeah. I, I would so, have to say you know, Yes, yeah, so if I think of a self-organized learning environment yeah. for some of us in our 60s, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think the questions of meaning mm-hmm. and how do you organize your life after work mm-hmm. and who are you and mm-hmm. what do you have to give mm-hmm. and what are we facing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are we facing? Change, big mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And what's most important to us? Mm. What is? <laughs> what is most important? To us, as as individuals, what is our highest priority in our life? Mm-hmm. You're speaking about as an individual question, yeah. For each person to mm-hmm. explore within themselves, mm-hmm. and perhaps- well, on, on, I would say on a day to day basis, whatever it is for me, the a lot of the motivator is not wanting to lose afraid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it turns out that's not something easy to answer. Well, you know, it was very interesting. I mean, tying all this in with education, too. When I was a kid growing up, I saw a lot of... uh a lot of heavy situations and then I would go into school and then I would be, um, you know, told that I had to learn about Abraham Lincoln and, uh, you know, old, uh, I'm not saying Abraham Lincoln is irrelevant. I'm just saying uh, just uh, information that they were filling my head with and I would, and I was not interested. I'm going, how is this going to help me when somebody's coming to my house and I have to call the cops because of this and this or I'm getting, you know, I got cancer and, and I'm going to die and you tell me how this information is going to help me in my life right now. Or, or my family. Or, or my, my family's family. falling apart. My family's falling Exactly. How is this going to help me? And I'm falling apart as a result of that. Yeah. So, so therefore, I never wound up getting, well, I got a secondary get education um, doing massage vocationally, but I never went to university. And I, and I had a conversation with a friend of mine who, uh, with a few friends of mine who have master's and PhDs. And I said, you know what? Maybe I need to go back to, to university. Maybe I need to get my degree. I don't know. I just, I can't. I can't sit. It's not that I have ADHD or ADD and I can't sit in the classroom. I just, I have no tolerance for the information that they're putting in my head because I only have so much memory, you know, RAM, and I don't want to fill it with this because it's 
to me, BS. Well, the great and, thing about what Sugata Mitra is presenting is that yeah. as soon as we discover what we would lo- really like to learn, exactly, everything's available to us. All we have to do is, is start asking the, the right questions. Well, go ahead. What I find so interesting about that is that, so here I am, I'm at a Tibetan Buddhist center, amazing, beautiful, wonderful experience, and I very much want to immerse myself and learn Sanskrit and the Tibetan language, and I've been on and off with it for about, I don't know, 14 years now, and I still cannot seem to get my brain wicked excited about the language. All right, I have it down a little bit. I can't hold a conversation. I mean, there's about four or five different, you know, versions of it because there's colloquial, there's formal, there's text, scriptural, da 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 da. And I don't know if it's just, I, you know, what about, I'm, what I'm engaging right now is that self directed learning is how do I spark that part in my brain that goes, this is awesome. Because part of me does believe it's awesome, but I know that there's a limbic part that's going, this is ridiculous. This right. blows, Well, that's man. the thing. I think we have to be really honest with ourselves with the, the question, what is it that I'm truly yeah. interested in? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the whole thing, because then I go back to, to your questions, Ava. I mean, because, because I was sick and I was faced with illness at such a young age, it speeds up your process. So you do feel like you're, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be 80, but I can imagine because just going from lying down to sitting up was an epic event. And um, <clears throat> you, your functions just start to go, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the point is, is that because it speeds up all those processes and you think, oh, my God, I could die any moment. Forget any day, any moment. So how is learning a language going to help me right now? I just I need to know how to prepare to die. But then you start thinking, okay, you know, there is the only moment is the present moment. And, you know, if it goes, if it just boils down to that, what question can I ask in this present moment? And even if it's that spaciousness that you were in before, Ava, which is, I, I, I don't know, just blank. Don't know, mind. Yeah. Then, we don't know. <laughs> I will leave it at that. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of when I was in college. And it was considered a very good college. Yeah. Um, and I happened to be there in Chicago while the Martin... Luther King was assassinated. The riots broke oh. up, broke, broke out all around us. Kent State happened my first year. Oh. Um, the Democratic Convention happened. Oh. And we had all of these tremendously wow. bright adults around us. Yeah. No one came and asked us if we were frightened. Mm. No one talked to us. Mm. about what was going on between us mm. and what it felt like to be there and yeah. in the middle of this. So I have a so f- to me, that's something that you can't look up on Google. So I have, a, I have a five-day challenge with all these challenges. I have a five-day challenge to have everybody be in the present moment and deal with those questions and fear and just be in it. And uh, since we don't know, but we're leaving. <laughs> Figure it out. The show's <laughs> over. You're on your own for the next week. Have fun, and thank you all for calling in. Oh, thank you. Engage in the thank challenge you. and the mystery. Bye-bye. Uh, bye-bye. Thank you, Barbara, for joining me. Thank you, Tony. You're welcome. Thank you, everyone, for listening. In the meantime, have a wonderful week.
Play with yourselves. Enjoy yourselves. Have fun with the world. In question. Everything. Anything. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.